We begin today's show with some amazing news. In Nevada, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto has won. She beat her MAGA opponent, Adam Laxalt. In Arizona, Senator Mark Kelly has held on to beat MAGA extremist Blake Masters. The Democrats have retained the Senate. What a relief. America has not completely lost its mind. We can move forward with hope for our future. There is one Senate race remaining. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock heads into a runoff against Republican Herschel Walker. Walker has a unique position on abortion. He believes all abortions should be illegal unless he's paying for one. I'm not saying Herschel Walker is dumb, but when his advisors told him he was in a runoff, he asked, is it the 40-yard dash or the 100? One huge advantage to Democrats keeping the Senate is the courts. Brian Fallon, the executive director of Demand Justice, said that Biden has the chance to confirm another 100-plus judges. And that's huge. It would go a long way in balancing the judicial system that was overrun by Trump-appointed judges. If you're into real estate, we've got a great house for you. It's outside Youngstown, Pennsylvania. And after the dropping Trumpian Republicans took in Pennsylvania, it can be bought at bargain basement prices. We call this the mega mega discount. A rich Democrat should buy this house and turn it into the Biden abode. I'm sure Republicans would love that. I almost forgot every single election denying, big lie peddling Republican Secretary of State candidate running in a swing state lost their election. This is massive for 2024. Democracy lives another day. Speaking of democracy, it was a beautiful sight to see Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's walking tour of Kherson. Ukraine took back this key city from the Russian barbarians. Hats off to the brave Ukrainian people. They are the front line of freedom. The pundit predicted big red wave never happened. That gigantic crimson tsunami was just a little splash. The success of the Democrats is something to be excited about. This could have been so much worse. However, our sense of relief should not be a full-blown celebration. Republicans could still control the House and Senate. This would essentially tie America up in knots with little progress for two years. Even if Republicans just win the House, they will obstruct legislation and engage in various circus acts and sideshows especially if Representative Kevin McCarthy caves to Marjorie Taylor Greene, giving her and her MAGA buddies unlimited power in exchange for votes to make McCarthy speaker. McCarthy is pathetic. He'd sell his own dog down the river to become Speaker of the House. For whatever reason, nobody in American history has coveted the job of Speaker more than McCarthy. I don't know, maybe the job comes with a better parking space. It's absolutely pathetic and a sight to behold how much he panders to hold that gavel. There is nothing he will not do for it. So expect if he becomes Speaker of the House, he's going to give the crazies in the Republican caucus more power than they ever dreamed of. On the plus side, if Republicans do win the House and McCarthy caves to the Marjorie Taylor Greene crowd, Americans will get to see precisely how radical and extreme they truly are. And that could be enough for the Democrats to win the White House in 2024. I don't think America wants more Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Jim Jordan. Anyway, here are 10 lessons that we learned from the midterms. Number one, Donald Trump is poison to the Republican Party. His MAGA brand is still strong, but definitely tarnished. Unfortunately, he's like Jaws or Michael Myers from Halloween. He'll keep coming back and trying to kill everybody in his path. But the massive losses suffered by Trump-endorsed, big-lie election deniers weakened his allure and inevitability. 
He's going to have even more problems because his midterm failures have emboldened Rupert Murdoch media properties to declare full-blown war on Donald Trump. These properties include Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Post. The Orange Sun King isn't through, but he's no longer safe on his throne. Number two, Republicans' hate and scapegoating isn't working as well as it did a couple of years ago. Americans are waking up to the fact that GOP has no plan, no solutions, and no answers. Mindlessly pointing fingers at LGBT people, immigrants are the woke, isn't going to pay the bills. The people are finally figuring this out. As the cult of Trump slowly diminishes, the Republicans are going to have to do more than simply whine and bellyache. Americans are sick and tired of their shtick. Number three, Joe Biden was a big winner. He is a consequential president who has passed important legislation. Biden has proven to be a winner repeatedly. The performance of Democrats in the midterms only strengthens his legacy and gives him more power going forward in the next two years. Number four, Ukraine was a big winner. MAGA Republicans want to reduce funding for Ukraine, even though they just evicted Russian troops from Kherson. MAGA Republicans worship Putin because he's a tyrant and they love authoritarianism. The absence of a red wave coupled with Ukraine's battlefield success means that funding for Ukraine is likely safe and will continue. Number five, abortion saved the Democrats. This is a potent issue that won't go away. The worst thing that ever happened to Republicans and the religious right is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This decision will haunt them also in 2024. There's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Democrats must continue to bludgeon Republicans on their efforts to sunset entitlements. The Democrats need to ensure that by 2024, every single person in America knows the Republicans are out to dismantle Medicare and Social Security, while the Democrats will protect these programs. Number seven, Ron DeSantis is riding high after his victory in Florida. In a moment, I'm going to discuss why he's an overrated flash in the pan. If Republicans want to embrace him, be my guest. It's a mistake they are going to regret. In today's show, we are going to interview an LGBT activist who was urging conventions and tourists to visit anywhere but Florida. And these types of campaigns are going to have blowback and diminish Ron DeSantis's high approval rating in Florida. Number eight, Democrats must sharpen their economic message. They need to win back the working class. It should not be that difficult considering Democrats have superior programs to help working families. Going forward, bread and butter issues should be front and center. That should be the number one thing that we talk about for two straight years. In today's show, I'm going to interview a conservative who claims that Republicans failed to win the working class because they focus too much on battling the woke rather than helping people improve their lives at work. Number nine, Democrats need to get their act together on crime. The GOP gained enormous traction leading up to the election by blaming Democrats for rising crime rates, even though crime is just as high in Republican-led cities. For the next two years, Democrats must win the trust of the American people on policing issues. We don't have to choose between keeping cities safe and ensuring police don't abuse minorities. America must do both, and Democrats should lead the way on showing America how we do this. And finally, number 10, Democrats must continue driving home the point that they are protectors of democracy. While MAGA-style Republicans are a threat to democracy, Joe Biden's pre-election speech on this issue was incredibly effective. 
We need to solidify this message where Democrats are naturally equated with strengthening democracy. Now we're going to turn to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and why I think he's an overrated mirage. He might be the man of the hour, but if Republicans embrace him, they will have their day of reckoning. The national media is swooning over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who defeated his Democratic opponent, Charlie Crist, by nearly 20 points. Republican operatives who were exhausted by Donald Trump and blaming him for defeat are also pushing the DeSantis narrative. And this includes Rupert Murdoch's publications, uh, including The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and The New York Post. A senior Republican strategist anonymously told The Washington Post, quote, Republicans saw their path forward last night in a double-digit landslide victory in Florida. By definition, Trump is a loser. Trump, loser. DeSantis, winner. Wow, those are some pretty powerful words, and I think it shows the depth of backing for DeSantis right now. But I think it's a mistake for Republicans. Unfortunately for DeSantis, he's not presidential material and is reminiscent to me of former Texas Governor Rick Perry, another rock star presidential frontrunner who hit rock bottom. He's also, I guess you could say, Fred Thompson, another Republican that was touted very highly who disappeared very quickly when he didn't have what it takes to be president. Florida's dark cloud in the Sunshine State is likely to wilt under the intense spotlight where all of his fatal flaws, and I'm going to point them out, there are many, will undermine his political future. For starters, DeSantis's massive victory came against Charlie Crist, a former Republican career politician turned Democrat who inspired absolutely no one. Republican strategist Anna Navarro blamed Democrats for nominating Crist, who she called a, quote, political corpse. Navarro also correctly points out that DeSantis leveraged his political power to enact voter suppression measures, creating a climate of fear that seemed to keep many Democrats from heading to the polls. Yesterday, he won by 20 percentage points. Why? Because he gained the system because he turned Florida into an unlevel playing field. They changed election laws, making it harder to vote by mail. They paraded uh, a bunch of people, black people, mm -hmm. that they arrested for uh, voting fraud and paraded them in front of national media. He created an election police. Turnout was 10 points lower than okay. it was in 2018. In 2018, it was 63%. Yesterday in Florida, it was 53%. Mm -hmm. So that's not a red wave. Red wave is when people go out to the streets and vote. When you have, what you had is a depressed, deflated vote, Democratic vote. DeSantis may have engaged in additional shenanigans that have yet to come to light. His decision to block Department of Justice election monitors from gaining access to polling places in South Florida looks suspicious, to put it mildly. This appears to be a redux of the 1960s, when Southern governors engaged in civil rights violations and voter suppression while obstructing the federal government from acting against their illegal activity. What exactly is Ron DeSantis hiding? That he didn't want the rest of the nation to see. Why doesn't he want those federal monitors? It looks really, really weird and suspicious. The Biden administration should launch an investigation. I'm not saying DeSantis lost the election, like some conspiracy theory. He didn't lose the election. He won. I want to state that clearly. However, there is a clear conflict of interest when a sitting governor up for re-election unilaterally decides that only his hand-picked state election monitors can keep watch over Democratic-leaning counties. If you think about it, it does seem a bit fishy 
that DeSantis was reelected in this massive landslide, but only won his first gubernatorial contest in 2018 against Andrew Gillum by 0.4 percentage points. For reference, in 2020, Donald Trump defeated Joe Biden in Florida by only 3.3 percentage points. But suddenly, DeSantis is winning with Vladimir Putin-like numbers? And he does so in a year where right-wing Republicans are getting destroyed everywhere else. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Makes you wonder. DeSantis was also aided in victory by the Democrats shifting resources to states where they believe they had a better chance of winning. This allowed the GOP to register 300,000 more votes than Democrats this year. The New York Times reports, quote, Democrats failed to adequately invest in the offices, staffing, and other resources necessary to reach voters in a large and expensive state. They continued to outsource basic party functions, such as voter registration, to outside groups, whose effectiveness some Democrats have increasingly called into question. After Tuesday's results, there will not be a single Democrat in statewide office for the first time since Reconstruction. This ability to exploit his power abuse his office and outspend Democrats are advantages that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will not have if he runs for president. However, DeSantis's largest obstacle to becoming president is his defective personality. David Jolly, a congressman from Florida who served with DeSantis, describes DeSantis as, quote, a little reclusive, a bit of an odd duck. He always had his earbuds in to keep people away. I mean, I do that too sometimes, but I'm not running for president. Dexter Filkins further elaborated on DeSantis's personality deficit in a sprawling New Yorker profile. In basic human interactions, DeSantis comes across as Rain Man Ron. Dexter Filkins wrote in his article, quote, nearly everyone I talked to who knew DeSantis commented on his effect, his lack of curiosity about others, his indifferent table manners, his aversion to the political rituals of dispensing handshakes and questions about the kids. By all appearances, DeSantis lacks the political acumen to conceal his inner jerks. This was evident when he bullied students into dispensing of their masks at a press conference in the height of the pandemic. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything and we gotta stop with this COVID theater. So if you wanna wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. I mean, look what he did to those kids. What a bully. Who does that? The New Yorker spoke to various people in the governor's past, and the theme emerges. DeSantis is driven, intelligent, yet he has an awkwardness and a mean streak that won't wear well in the presidential run. The article says, quote, some recall that DeSantis was so intensely focused that he wasn't much of a Yale baseball teammate. Quote, Ron is the most selfish person I have ever interacted with, another teammate told me. He has always loved embarrassing and humiliating people. I'm speaking for others. He was the biggest dick we knew. But the same teammate praised DeSantis' intellect, saying, quote, this is the frustrating part. He's so fucking smart and so creative. A smart, creative Ivy League graduate might get far in state politics, but it also describes virtually every person running for president in the upcoming race. That's not an advantage that he will have there, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. 
Well, many low-information Floridians celebrated DeSantis's lax COVID policies. More than 82,000 Florida residents have died from the coronavirus since the beginning of the pandemic. The Tampa Tribune reports that, quote, there are studies that suggest the state could have prevented thousands of those deaths. The newspaper opined, quote, it's easy to dismiss the numbers, but they represent deaths, real people who died from COVID, perhaps unnecessarily. Governor DeSantis and his Florida Surgeon General rarely mention vaccines or the pandemic anymore, even as it kills scores of Floridians every single day. They want to put COVID in the rearview mirror, but it keeps showing up in the back seat. While Florida Republicans might be fine with hordes of unnecessary deaths, this could be a liability in a presidential race. Many Floridians don't call them governor death sentence or death sentence for nothing. The media's anointing of Governor DeSantis as Trump's heir apparent puts a target on his back, a massive target. In the governor's first term, he was able to traffic in vicious culture wars with relatively little pushback. DeSantis spearheaded his infamous don't say gay law and stopped schools from teaching critical race theory, which of course they weren't teaching anyway because he's such a stage horse. He just invents these massive culture war clashes to enrage his red meat conservative base. In DeSantis's victory speech, he arrogantly attacked the so-called woke. We reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Unfortunately for Governor DeSantis, the woke, aka experts, creatives, LGBTQ people, and white-collar professionals tend to have a lot of disposable income and love to travel. Now that DeSantis is a national figure, the woke are likely to wake up to the alarming political transformation of Florida into Alabama. There's a reason why places like Mississippi and Alabama aren't packed with tourists like Florida are, because people like the uh, more progressive environment of Miami and Fort Lauderdale, for example, and they're not comfortable in going to places like Alabama. But that's going to change, and it's going to change very quickly. The fact that DeSantis has had great difficulty condemning Nazis, by the way, actual Nazi rallies, will not help him either when he tries to dismiss people's concerns about Florida's new direction. You can expect, oh, one more time, you can expect anywhere but Florida campaigns to potentially materialize, especially as an emboldened DeSantis expands his bullying crusade against minorities, and as sure as the sun rises and sets, that's exactly what he plans to do. Stamp Corbin, a former board member of the Human Rights Campaign, is urging conventions and tourists to choose other destinations, anywhere but Florida. I want and I expect our new leaders within our organizations to hold Florida and Ron DeSantis accountable. And the only thing that speaks to him is money. In just a moment, you can see my full interview with Stan Corbin. Stick around. You will not want to miss it. Anyway, DeSantis is always pandering to the religious right, but this plays better in Florida, a state awash in evangelical fervor. It's not going to play as well on the national stage. Florida, and I know because I'm from there, it is not representative of the rest of the United States, and we saw that with the elections. Where right-wing, hardcore, MAGA-style Republicans were going down, Ron DeSantis won. 
And this sort of attitude problem, this anger, this bitterness, this, this nastiness is not going to play as well elsewhere as it does in a place like Florida. Speaking of the religious right, in a chilling and narcissistic vanity ad that will come back to haunt him if he runs for president, DeSantis revealed a creepy God complex. Here's the clip. You won't believe it. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. Anyone who would produce such a tone-deaf ad has delusions of grandeur. It raises massive red flags. It suggests that DeSantis is uniquely unfit to oversee America's nuclear codes. Do you want a person who thinks they're a holy prophet with his finger near the nuclear button? I sure don't. While DeSantis is a darling of the religious right today, they will try to pressure him this year into enacting a draconian abortion ban. If DeSantis agrees, that will harm Florida's tourism industry very quickly, and it will marry him to a deeply unpopular issue that wounded Republicans in the midterms. It could cost him the presidency. If he defies the religious right and tries to keep an abortion ban at 15 weeks, he will be skewered by his base. They will all of a sudden turn on him and look for somebody else, like a Mike Pence, for example. This is a no-one issue that could derail DeSantis in 2024. This could be his albatross. Finally, DeSantis has raised the ire of Donald Trump, a one-man wrecking ball who has perfected the art of the politics of personal destruction. In 2015, if you remember, Trump dispensed of one GOP rival after another, reducing them to Little Marco, Lion Ted, Low Energy Jeb, and so forth. He's already slimed the Florida governor as Ron DeSanctimonious. Trump has also threatened to release dirt on Ron DeSantis. He said, quote, I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife. Given Trump's hoarding of top secret documents in Mar-a-Lago, and his friendship with people in the intelligence industry. It might be true. He might actually have dirt on Ron DeSantis, plus his ties to the National Enquirer and David Pecker and others at that newspaper. So it, yeah, it is possible he has some dirt. I wouldn't doubt it at all, would you? DeSantis' strength is that he can out-nasty his rivals. But Trump is his equal in gutter politics. And the former president has infinitely more charisma. This is a brawl that DeSantis is likely to lose. Bottom line, Ron DeSantis is a right-wing bubble politician who isn't ready for the big stage of presidential politics. Most of his mystique was created by Fox News producers who were desperate to groom someone new, a new TV personality, to replace Trump. If DeSantis wants to see the inside of the White House, I suggest the next time he's in Washington, he order tickets for one of their fabulous tours. That's the only way he's getting close to the Oval Office. Joining us right now is Stamp Corbin, a former San Diego City Commissioner. He served on the National Board of Directors for the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ organization in the nation. Uh, Stamp was the chair of the Citizens Equal Opportunity Commission, where he ensured that contracting in the city of San Diego was fair and equally available to all people. And he was a member of the Governor's Council on Minority Business in Ohio, as well as the Board of Directors for the Columbus AIDS Task Force. Uh, Stan, welcome to the show. You, you forgot about co-chair of the Obama National LGBT Leadership Council during the 2008 campaign. 
Well, that's quite an impressive resume. It's hard to get everything in there, but that is that is actually a really impressive credential. So thank you for bringing that up. So you do have a long history with the LGBT community and, um, and, and do have a lot of credentials. So that's why it's important to hear what you have to say on an idea that you have been discussing, and that is a boycott on Florida. And before we get there, Ron DeSantis was reelected. He beat Charlie Crist by 20 points. His message was, quote, Florida is where woke goes to die. In your view, was he targeting LGBTQ people with his comment? Of course he is. We have the don't say gay bill. We have the critical race theory, which is history, can't be taught. I'm a teacher in Florida, and I can't have a picture of my partner on my desk because I teach a third grade class and someone might ask me what that's all about. And so what's disappointing is that Floridians returned him to his office by 20 points, 60-40. I'm not going to comment on whether Charlie Crist was the best candidate. I'm not going to comment on whether the Democratic Party put the money that they should have put in there. But here's what the news is. Floridians voted him in after a don't say gay bill that negatively impacts me and after a, hey, we're not about critical race theory, which is about my history. It's not being taught in grammar schools. It's not being taught in high schools. It's a college course that talks about systemic racism. Critical race theory and LGBT rights should be taught in schools. It's gotten to the point where our organizations and our leaders are not responding. A lot of people are celebrating. We have a lesbian governor uh, in Massachusetts, and we have some non-binary folks. Guys, that's all wonderful, and I'm glad that in those pockets. But what we need to focus upon is who are the likely candidates that are going to be the Republican nominees and what are they going to do to us? And you mentioned education. He has attacked teachers in school, but also at the university level. He has gone after professors at the University of Florida and told them not to testify, whether it's on climate change or on other issues, and is intruded upon free and fair education. So this is somebody who has, who has attacked um, education in general, but specifically he's targeted LGBTQ people. Most recently, he's gone after drag queens. He's even brought up through his press secretary, uh, Christine Pushaw, grooming. He made that statement come back from the uh, deathbed, brought it back from Anita Bryant's time in 1978, the former orange juice queen, to smear all LGBTQ people as child molesters. So this is somebody who has an agenda and is very dangers. Oh, by the way, the Nazis, like actual real Nazis with swat stickers, have waved their flags and protested in Florida once in front of Disney World. And just a couple of weeks ago, the anti-Semites projected messages of anti-Semitism all over Jacksonville on buildings and in uh, on a stadium. Well, the governor happened to be in that stadium. And in every single instance where we have seen anti-Semites or Nazis, this outspoken governor who claims to be the great defender uh, of Floridians has been silent when it comes to fascism. So this is a big problem with DeSantis and Florida right now. Yes, 
it's an absolute big problem. And, uh, you know, what I want to talk about a little bit is the differing standards amongst our allied communities. Everyone is ready to appropriately talk about Kyrie Irving and to talk about Ye, I think his name is these days, Kanye, concerning their anti-Semitic behavior. And they have felt the consequences due to those inappropriate and heinous opinions. Um, corporations that are associated with you are not pulling back. But corporations that are associated with Florida aren't pulling back. And they make choices. You choose to have your event in Florida. You could choose to have your event in California. You choose to go to the state. Would you have chosen to hold an event in Nazi Germany? When you go to Florida, what's that saying to your LGBT folks who work for you? What's that saying to your African-American employees when they're down there trying to fight against critical race theory, which is the history of America? I don't understand how any LGBT organization or any LGBT ally would choose to hold an event in Florida. They would say there's a lot of anti-LGBTQ legislation across the country. Why specifically target Florida? What's your reply to that? No one's trying to go to North Dakota to hold a conference for high-tech individuals. No one's going to North Dakota to be by the beach. Okay, so I want and I expect our new leaders within our organizations to hold Florida and Ron DeSantis accountable. And the only thing that speaks to him is money. Ron DeSantis is becoming the new face of the Republican Party. Floridians voted 60% to put him in after these heinous policies have been enacted. Here's what he decided. Disney, you support LGBT folks. I am going to take money away from you. I am going to hold you accountable because guess what? You have an inability to move Disney World. Well, you know what? I have an ability to not go to Florida. What would this, okay, you're not calling it a boycott. Uh, what, would, what would this look like? Are we going after the cruise line? Are, are we going after the cruise lines, telling people not to visit, conferences? Explain what you'd like to see happen uh, in Florida to make an impact and uh, change the direction of the state, which is clearly in the wrong direction right now. So it's very simple. It's choices. You have a choice whether you want to hold your conference in Florida. That is signaling that you support that. And what is that signal? How do you expect African-Americans to react when you go down there and he has horrible policies? How do you expect LGBT? We're just supposed to ignore that you chose to go support that environment. There's a huge community, especially in Wilton Manors, uh, for example, in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Do you think that the local community is going to be behind this or the statewide organization, uh, for example, Equality Florida? Or is this something that's going to have to take uh, place in spite of of them. What, how do you expect them to react, number one? And number two, do you think national organizations would get on board with this? And should they be running uh, such a campaign? I believe it's the choice campaign. And the reason that it's not a boycott is because we're not saying don't go to Florida. 
So you can choose to support a government and a state that does not support you, or you could choose not to. Now, unfortunately, yes, there are LGBTQ people that live in Wilton Manors and in Miami Beach and all of that. I don't expect them to actively come out and say, don't come to my state. I understand the conundrum that they're in, but the rest of us who don't live in the state are not in a conundrum. And we also understand that there are going to be times when you don't really have a choice. But if you have choices, make good ones. Here's what I'm concerned about. Given what we've seen in Florida and the lack of national pushback, I'm afraid it makes us as a community, as a movement, uh, and our organizations nationally look weak and feckless. Like they could run, like Governor DeSantis is running roughshod over us, and we're not responding from a national level. And I think weakness, when you have somebody like Ron DeSantis, invites more bullying. A bully does not back down until you stand up to them. And I don't think we have stood up to Ron DeSantis so far And that's why what you're saying is making more sense, especially after Ron DeSantis being reelected and giving his anti-woke speech, clearly meaning LGBTQ people as as well as other minorities in the state. So, I I mean, are you worried about that, too, that if we don't do something, it's going to we're going to look feckless and just invite more discrimination? I couldn't agree with you more, Wayne. The Today Show did a whole, you know, report on anti-discrimination. And they talked about Kanye and the reaction from um, the Jewish community. They talked about Kyrie and the reaction from the Jewish community. And then when they talked about LGBT, there was no reaction. They didn't have anybody on saying, hey, this is horrible. Now, recently, Equality Florida had their spokesperson on the Joy Reid show, and he did a fantastic job. We should be on every day. And they had some good ads as well. I put out some good ads as well. I thought were uh, were, were powerful. But I, I think it has to be a national response to this. I don't think a statewide group is strong enough. I think you need our national groups to say, we are going to stand up and make an example of Ron DeSantis, because if we don't, we're going to invite 10 versions of Ron DeSantis to come after us. There must be consequences for coming after the LGBTQ community. They don't have to like us, but they damn well at least better fear us. And I'm not sure that's happening right now. I would agree at 100%. When I was on the board of HRC in the 90s, when we started the fight for marriage equality, HRC raised $1 million for the Hawaii campaign in the 90s. So what's that equivalent now? A million and a half, $2 million? So that's the kind of investment we need to make over the next two years to ensure that Ron DeSantis pays the price. We have a don't say gay bill, which they're trying to nationalize. We need to show that there will be consequences if you come at us like this. And I'm sorry it's going to hurt LGBTQ Floridians. I, I am sorry, but it needs to be done. And why Florida? Because that's where we spend most of our money. Other than California, what state do you think LGBTQ people spend the most money? I got a question. So let's just say the national organizations or a new entity takes this up. What does victory look like in such a case? Is it Ron DeSantis backtracking on the don't say 
gay bill. I mean, what what makes this end? They have met our requirements, and we are now encouraging people to go back to Disney. What what, what does that look like uh, for you? What would look like victory for us is that the population that's being impacted stops supporting Ron DeSantis. He starts hearing from his constituents, oh my gosh, the tourism is going down. It's negatively impacting my family. What these policies that you've implemented have created an environment where people don't want to come to Florida. You need to fix that. I think it's time to beach Ron DeSantis. If you ask me, it needs to be beached right now because it's And he put out this new crazy ad that he portrayed himself as anointed by God as the great defender of Floridians. That was, I thought, one of the most dangerous ads I've ever seen. He thinks he's God's gift to Florida and the world. I mean, talking about power getting to somebody's head, I think that makes him quite dangerous. Anybody who would actually put out an ad like that and portray himself as, as uh, created specifically by God to fight, uh, God created the fighter. I mean, I'm not sure who this guy thinks he is, but there's clearly a God complex going on, which makes him dangerous. That's another reason to go out and take a stand here. Right, and I will say this. Right now, what we have is an opportunity because if you think Donald Trump is going to let Ron DeSantis march to this nomination, and we just are going to be, be over there and it'll give Trump an opportunity to say, I, I, I have no problem with LGBT people. I don't know why Ron DeSantis and Florida, you know, and so it, it, it will elevate our message not that we're going to vote for the vast majority of us are not ever going to vote Republican under the current state of the party, but we need to get our message elevated. We need to be on all the time. I saw more coverage of Kanye West and Kyrie Irving concerning anti-Semitism than I did with Don't Say Gay Bill. Do you, do you think this has to do with are organizations relaxing after marriage equality and thinking, okay, things are pretty good right now, and everybody took like a mental vacation, and we lost some of our fight? Because uh, that's what it seems like to me right now, because because you, you're correct, and I think it's great that this anti-Semitism was taken on and these and, and Kyrie and, and Ye being held accountable. But I, I also share your concern and your observation that the these attacks on our our people, our transgender and, and, and gay people, did not get the attention it deserved. It was kind of, it was like a, a side story rather than the front page. And that has to change. And I, I think, again, that looks weak. And... Every homophobe is salivating. Not only that, but we also, another reason, I think, to, to target Florida is they, they're not just passing these laws. They're not just coming after us. But the language that's used, this whole groomer verbiage that's trying to portray us as, as, as sick and child molesters because something out of the 1970s did real damage. And every homophobe in the country jumped on that particularly online if you go to a you know a twitter or anything like that they they were emboldened florida emboldened every hardcore homophobe in the country and transphobe uh to really just wallow in the gutter like something we haven't seen for quite a while so that's another reason right there it's not just what they're doing but the way they have done it begs a powerful response you know at the end of the day 
what we need to do is hold people to account for our ability to live our lives and be safe in our workplace, be safe at our, in our home, um, and be safe in our community. That's what this is about. If someone chooses to bring their child to a drag show, that's their parents' decision. Remember, Republicans used to be for parents' rights. Apparently now it's only Republican parents' rights. I mean, the, the hypocrisy here is off the charts. Correct. And so our non-response, and Florida is what we need to use to show that we can do this everywhere, it's so easy with Florida. Their entire state is based upon tourism. What really concerns me is everyone's celebrating there was an open letter about leaving um, Twitter now that Elon Musk and what he's doing. Everyone's talking about that. So then why don't we have the equivalent for our rights? And you know what? We had it in Indiana. We had that with RIFRA. That's true. Mike Pence had to back down. He had to back down in Indiana because people were afraid that LGBTQ people would go to a restaurant and people would be able to say, I'm not going to serve you because you're, you're gay or trans. And uh, we don't have to because it's our religion. And so uh, there was an outpouring and an uproar and even Mike Pence backed down. And, uh, and yet the same sort of, uh, of, of anger and, and organizing hasn't seemed to materialize in Florida, which is, is really strange because Indiana is like a very right-wing uh, small state with limited impact as opposed to Florida, which is a major state. And what happens in Florida is a, has a national impact. It's much larger than Indiana. Correct. We need to hold people accountable who are going to Florida. It's easy. It's tourism. You don't have to go there. So when you choose to go there, I just want you to understand, major corporation, what you're saying is you agree with the policies of Ron DeSantis. You choose to go to Florida. That signals to me it's not a dog whistle. It is an absolute signal to me. It's a megaphone. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a megaphone. Right. Saying that we... You know, we're going to sweep this under the carpet. We don't really truly support our LGBTQ uh, workers and, our, and these families. And it's offensive to me how we are just so diminutized when it comes to this. And people are ignoring what's happening. And we just saw these new uh, regulations affecting trans people this week. So this is ongoing. And I think that now that Ron DeSantis has been emboldened and has his sights on the presidency, this is only going to intensify right now. And that is why it's important to take a stand more than ever, especially after this election. Anything else you'd like to add um, before we go? I just hope that, you know, the younger leaders are listening because we've done this before, but it's time for me to pass the baton to the younger leaders. And you can't be afraid. This is a two-year time frame that we have the ability to make it such that Floridians are not happy with Ron DeSantis. And if we can make that happen by hitting their pocketbooks and their wallets, then let's do it. It doesn't need to be a big media campaign. This needs to be stealth. We can say, hey, you have choices. Right. 
Thank you so much for being on the Wayne Besson Show today. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for inviting me, Wayne. Democratic South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn ruffled right-wing feathers by warning that Republican rule reminded him of the early days of Nazi Germany. Here's the clip. I want to start here with some comments you made just a couple of days ago. This is what happens in a country that follows what happened in Germany uh, in the early 30s. This country is on track to repeat what happened in Germany when it was the greatest democracy going, elected a chancellor who then co-opted the media, and that's what's going on in this country. That is what will lead to the destruction of this democracy. I completely agree with Representative James Clyburn. The writing is on the wall, and unfortunately, it's in German, circa 1933. It does America no favors to deny reality or soft-pedal the truth. Republicans are on the path to authoritarianism, if not outright fascism. You can't fight back unless you properly and specifically identify the problem and call it precisely what it is. And what the Republicans are doing looks like fascism. On Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream questioned the Democratic House Majority Whip on his view. Thankfully, Clyburn did not back down or buckle and defended reality, telling it like it is. Congressman, you've repeatedly made comments about Hitler, about Nazism, about Germany in the 1930s in recent years. You've gotten a lot of pushback from that, from Jewish organizations and others who say it belittles the suffering of the Holocaust, of the millions who were lost. Your response? I've talked to many Jews. There are many Jews in my congressional district. And they are very supporters of mine. They know that this is the stuff uh, that causes those kinds of deteriorations in democracy. This is not anything about uh, whether how difficult it was. I talk about slavery and how difficult it was. But that to discuss the facts of what's going on here, election deniers, setting up procedures by which little committees by governors can overturn the results of election, to call the press the enemy of the people, to co-op evangelicals. And I grew up uh, in a Christian faith, in a Postnitz, born and raised in a Postnitz. I know a whole lot about religion. And I know there's always an attempt to co-op uh, religions, and that is what's going on here. Okay. And people want to deny it, that's fine. But okay, the but facts are very clear. I've studied history all of my life. Okay. I taught but history. And I'm telling you, what I see here are parallels to what the history was okay. uh, in this world uh, back in the 1930s so, Congressman, in then Germany, in Italy. One of the most abused bits of wisdom is Godwin's law. It asserts that if you mention Adolf Hitler or Nazis within an argument, you've automatically ended whatever discussion you're engaged in. Some will even take it further and declare that the person who makes the Nazi comparison has lost the argument. That's true if the person being accused of behaving like a Nazi or a fascist isn't one. It's never appropriate to exaggerate or smear someone. Throwing around uh, terms like Nazi, fascist, or making Hitler comparisons also diminishes the memory of the Holocaust. So such combustible language should not be bandied about lightly. However, what happens 
if the person or party in question does hold fascist beliefs? What happens when you're arguing with real Nazis or those sympathetic of Nazi views? In that case, Godwin's law no longer applies and goes out the window. We can't be so careful to avoid using the label of Nazi or fascist that we inadvertently minimize and excuse the noxious behavior of actual real Nazis perpetuating and perpetrating harm on the American people. If the Republican Party does not like comparisons with fascism, they should stop acting like fascists. It's really that simple. They can begin by abandoning democracy-destroying election deniers. They can also stop denigrating people and scapegoating them, whether immigrants, African-Americans, Jews, or transgender people. My message to Republicans, if the label fits, Sarab Amari is one of the founders and editors of Compact, a radical American journal. His book on the tyranny of the private sector will be out next year, and he had a, an excellent op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, you wrote in the New York Times that the Republican Party's fake populism and lack of attention to the working class played a key role in thwarting a red wave. Uh, elaborate on your theory. Sure. I mean, I should make clear that I'm, you know, I'm of the right. Um, but over the past uh, five, six years, I, you know, initially saw promise in uh, the direction the pop party was taking in terms of uh, of populism, and there were some achievements, right? I mean, um, the tariffs that the Trump administration championed stuck, and the Biden administration has not altered uh, any of them. But since then. Um, you know, the Trump administration got consumed in a lot of its own scandals, whether they were real and some of them were media concocted. Um, and a lot of the personnel it appointed were, um, you know, despite his rhetoric, his pro-worker rhetoric, were typical Republican Chamber of Commerce personnel. And so as it cashed out in terms of, for example, uh, labor union policy, his Department of Labor was unfortunately profoundly hostile to, to unionism. Um, and but more recently, I mean, if if Trump was sort of halting and self-contradictory as a as a pro-worker, quote unquote, populist, what I worry the past two years since he left office is the Republicans um, championing this kind of language of the multiracial working class, which is this mantra a lot of uh, Republican lawmakers and operatives repeat um, over and over, uh, uh, and talking about themselves as a working class party is merely kind of at the level of culture war. And what they're doing at the level of policy is actually reconsolidating back to the kind of Reagan era consensus of the right, which was, you know, anti-union, deregulatory, um, against kind of raising up workers, countervailing power in the workplace. Um, and it's it's all just culture, right? So they talk about like XYZ Corporation fired an employee for having the wrong views, which, by the way, might be bad that the, the, the company did that. But they won't then go to, well, how do we prevent that? Well, you know, there's this thing called the labor union that can uh, impose due process requirements or uh, uh, termination for cause requirements on, on a workplace. They won't go there. So I've become a lot more cynical as I've watched this develop and recognize that it's all just kind of rhetorical and culture war, it doesn't actually get at the material issues in our political economy. And do you think it impacted the the outcome of the election, though? Like this message was if people were going, you know what, I don't see any improvement in my life in terms of uh, as a worker. 
And the Republican Party is offering us a culture war. They're offering us a, you know, about woke, but um, what about minimum wage and so forth? What about uh, what about workers uh, being overworked and so forth? So you think that had an impact? Talk about you know how you think that played into the election. It's early days yet in terms of analyzing the results. So I will fully say that this is somewhat kind of educated speculation, right? But we did see, you know, um, still, as has been happening over the past six, since the Trump era, you saw the Republican Party continue to, it does manage to coax um, workers uh, without a high school education, so unskilled or semi-skilled workers on, to its own side. But as I argue, it doesn't represent them. But you also had... Um, you know, under 30 voters breaking heavily for the Democratic side. And I think some of that, we have to say, was over cultural issues from the left point of view, you know, like abortion and so forth. But um, insofar as those people, uh, those under 30s, and many of them are actually educated, they're part of what you would call like a, a professional precariat. That is people who um, have a college education, but they haven't been able to find um, stable work that um, would be rewarding for the education they have, um, or they, you know, work at Starbucks or whatever just to make ends meet. These people are, you know, if they look at what the Republican Party offered them, there was no kind of positive material agenda that would uh, appeal to them. So a lot of a lot of um, Republicans, for example opposed uh, student loan forgiveness just out of the out of the gate without any kind of offering any alternative or anything just said well this is bad it hurts the working class the question of course is well who is the working class the working class also includes lots of people who went to college and they were promised that if they went to college they would have um, material security that didn't work out for them and so now they're you know toiling as adjunct professors uh, starbucks work baristas and so forth and if they turn to the Republican Party, all that the message that they get is, well, you're on your own, basically. And that's not a very appealing message. One of your interesting observations in your New York Times op-ed was that the Republicans are mischaracterizing the working class as, you know, uh, labor unions working out on a dock, uh, a lumberjack and so forth. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, it's actually been expanded to this a class of, in some places, overeducated people that don't have a, a career to match their degree. The people that you mentioned, which is the kind of quintessential Republican image of a working class person, is a kind of roofing contractor or a kind of burly teamster, electrician, etc. Those people are working class, um, but the republic, you know, a lot of Republican rhetoric about the working class. Um, does this kind of too clever thing where they narrow the definition of working class to only those people, and then they sort of treat you know adjunct professors and and um, anyone who works with sort of information as being basically part of the elite, even if these people are actually living very precarious lives, they have many of the same struggles as people who work with tangible material like you know uh, carpentry or um, uh, electrical wiring or what have you. They might work on screens, for example, but they still have the same problem of being working class, which is what? It means you you are asset less. And so the only way you have of being able to survive is selling your labor power for wages in the kind of labor market. And so you have the same conditions, but you Republicans frame working class as a kind of cultural identifier rather than, you know, kind of an objective reality. The fact is, you know the 
um, American class system is is pretty obvious. I mean, you can look, go, you can go to libertarian economists or you can go to progressive economists. The picture they give you is we have, you know, like the top 0.1 percent. Uh, who are the kind of largest owners? You have the top 1.1 percent. These are Wall Street executives. You have the top, let's say, five to ten percent of professionals who service the assets of those first two groups, and then you have the bottom 90 percent, and that includes blue-collar workers for sure. But it also means non-managerial workers, non-college edu- educated workers, and crucially, uh, what economists describe as downwardly mobile college educated ones. And so, it, it, the party who succeeds. Uh, politically in this country is one that answers the problems of those 90%. I'm not saying Democrats are perfect in this regard. Actually, you know, a lot of my work is critical of Democrats for many things. But the Republican Party um, uh, uh, doesn't it doesn't even begin to answer, try to answer them, right? So at least you turn to the Democrats. They want to uphold, you know, the basic settlement of the New Deal. Uh, they want to uphold, you know, the regulatory state and so forth. Whereas you turn to Republicans, including, I would say, some who pitch themselves as right-wing Republican, quote-unquote, populists, and they still think, say things like, for example, the new par- president of the Heritage Foundation, this guy, Kevin Roberts, said uh, not too long ago, quote, government is the obstacle to our flourishing. You know, that's a kind of insane thing to say, right? Because certainly he wants police officers, he wants firefighters, and I would invite him, you know, if we achieve his vision of getting rid of government, you know, okay, you take the first, you know, airplane flight after the Federal Aviation Administration is um, abolished, you know, you go first, because I'm not doing that, right? So that is hearkening back to actually kind of pre-New Deal mentality still, that, you know, government doesn't have anything good to contribute, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense. And of course, it, you know, if their vision is realized, it's you know, middle and working class people who the most hurt. So what annoys me is that they frame all this now as kind of like pro-working class, pro-worker populism. It's not. It's like the same old Republican agenda. And you mentioned uh, there was a Starbucks barista who was complaining about being overworked. Uh, they, they had to work you know, and go to school. And then they had to work all the full time and then the weekend. And how was that greeted by the right when this worker said, hey, I'm being overworked. I'm exhausted. I'm trying my best to work and go to school. And how was how was this greeted? Right. This is a really good example of this phenomenon. Right. So for the past two years, maybe a little bit longer, um, conservatives have been complaining about woke capital or woke corporations. And I share that, right? I don't I don't want workers to be politically indoctrinated by their human resources departments or be, be forced to say things they don't believe are true, whatever the perspective of the employer might be. That seems like a violation. So they've been railing against, for example, Starbucks. Starbucks is woke. Look at the products they sell. It's LGBT, this and that. Okay, all right, whatever. Then you actually have a worker coming around and saying, Hey, my life is very hard. They scheduled me for 24 hours. It's grinding. And, you know, it is very hard to stand on your feet for eight hours with like one break. And that's the life of a Starbucks barista. And the customers keep coming, right? It's a very brutal grind. And you're making, you know, at best minimum wages or whatever. And, you know, this person comes around and the reaction from the right is to mockery. Boo-hoo, you have to work eight hours a day. Grow up, that's life, you know, sort of. And so it's interesting to me that woke Starbucks is bad, it's terrible, it's ideological, this and that. 
then the uh, up until the moment there's actually kind of workers' rights at stake, and then it becomes they're back to you know, kind of 19th century freedom of contract mentalities. Well, you chose to work this, you know, it's your choice. You can always walk away, you know, and, and as though people actually have a choice to walk away from a job just because they're tired. You can most, in most cases, the job you have is, is paying for various bills. It's sorry, you can't do that. So it's just interesting to me that, um, again, the sort of anti-woke capital thing is strictly limited to cultural issues. And that, it, that won't go far as, as I argue, we saw uh, Tuesday night. Yeah, it, uh, and it seems, um, you know, although I vehemently disagree with them, it does seem that Trump did have some traction by uh, going a bit to the left, left to center on some of these worker issues during his fir- during his first campaign. Uh, so one has to wonder why aren't more Republicans following that because it was successful. Is that because of who they're beholden to? You mentioned the think tanks and donors. Does that have something to do with it? That's one part of it. You know, look, we have to be honest. The Democratic Party also has its kind of plutocratic constituencies, right? Uh, Big finance, Hollywood, Silicon Valley. But somehow the Democratic Party manages all these constituencies to an extent to say, hey, okay, fine, you know, we give you this and that, but you also have to make concessions here and there. Unfortunately, from my experience on the right, the donors are just like fully in charge. And so it's it's very hard to break through. Also, I think beyond looking beyond the donors, it's just, um, you know, and the, it's part of the ideology of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, I have to say this is going to shock some people. It's going back to the 19th century. In some ways, for example, even Lincoln had some shortcomings and when it came to these issues, he had this famous speech to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society. He was a great emancipator. I'm a huge admirer of Lincoln. But on these political economic questions, he had this picture of the sort of pre-industrial revolution smallholder who's sort of independent, doesn't have a boss. And he just thought that everyone will be a worker at some point, And then you come to own the tools of production yourself. And then, you you know, someone else comes to work for you. And then that person comes to become the owner of his own life. The problem with that is that after industrial revolution, that's not how it works. Most industries are highly concentrated. Not everyone can become a capitalist. Most people have to work for a living. Um, so this has a long pedigree of, 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 of the, say, intellectually, the Republican Party envisions an economy which is a late 18th century economy of like artisans and smallholders and completely independent and tries to impose that on a reality that's just not there that was all swept away after the rise of the machine and the industrial revolution so it's donors but also i mean if there's some work to be done on part of people like me who are still you know conservative writers intellectuals to educate on that and sort of move beyond that which which may not be successful because of the first half of the problem, which was the donors. Final question. You have an exciting new book coming out next year, and you're going to be discussing the tyranny of the private sector. Can you give us a preview? Yeah. I mean, it's very much along the themes of what we've been talking about. Um, Americans, especially conservative Americans, are very wary of governmental coercion, right? The coercion that government can do to you. um, We're very alert to that, and we're ready to fight that. And that's good in some ways. The problem is that what what we miss is that uh, we're also subjected to coercion in the private economy, in our lives as workers, as consumers, um, as online users of online information. Um, but that's not meted out by like the state. It's meted out by, you know, Silicon Valley billionaires or by uh, your employer. And the tech companies are some of the worst. I mean, you, there, I remember reading stories about Amazon, for example, employees weeping at their desk 
um, over some of the things they've had to do. I mean, there, there's a lot of, with the new economy, in some ways, it's like a cyber sweatshop. Correct. Correct. So the book is an attempt to just highlight the fact to show people across different realms of life, the much of the coercion we face is not what comes from the government. It's come, what comes from the employer, the monopolistic uh, manufacturer, that 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 et cetera, et cetera. So it, the, the title is actually Tyranny Incorporated, and it'll be out in August, um, August twenty twenty three. It sounds very interesting. Any final thoughts you want to add on this topic before we go? Wayne, I'm very uh, grateful to, to to be on, and uh, hopefully, this kind of cross partisan conversations will grow in the coming years. Definitely. I thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I, I really enjoyed your uh, piece in the Times today. Thank you, sir. We can all be excited about how the elections went and there wasn't a big red wave, but there were still a lot of MAGA people in America. And unfortunately, they're not going anywhere so quickly. You know, in the daily tsunami of Trump stories, it's easy to forget the time the former president was booed for admitting that he had received a COVID-19 vaccine. The acknowledgement came at an event in Dallas where former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly said that both the president and I are vaxxed. O'Reilly followed up by asking Trump, did you get the booster? Trump replied honestly. He said yes, to which the anti-vax segment of his base vehemently expressed their disapproval. Even at their orange sun god, they expressed this disapproval. Both the president and I are vaxxed, and uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it too. Okay, so... Um... Oh, don't, 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 That's all. There's a very tiny group over there. In retrospect, this act of Republican disobedience was illuminating. It showed that the Frankenstein MAGA monster that Trump and the GOP had built was alive, restive, and ready to break free from the lab. We saw a similar scenario play out in Brazil, where radicalized right-wing Jair Bolsonaro supporters blocked roads with trucks and begged the military to stage a coup after their candidate lost. When Bolsonaro told them to go home, they ignored him showing that once the inmates take over the asylum, they don't always listen to the warden. No matter which party controls Washington, it's clear that no one controls the unruly zealots that have been spawned by the Republican fanatic factory. A recent poll found that one in three Republicans believe that violence may be necessary to save the United States. Republican leaders seem to lack the courage to take on their base. The few that have, such as Representative Cheney, have been unceremoniously ejected from the Republican Party. The lunacy spreads all the way to the top of the ladder, all the way to the highest reaches of government. Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Lauren Boebert are last year's maniacal models. We can only imagine what the newest batch of batshit crazy lawmakers will bring to Washington and state capitals across the country but we should be most concerned about the gun-toting MAGA rank and file who are pulling rank on their leaders and are no longer willing to line up single file to take orders. America is going to have to come to grips with the alarming fact that one-third of our population has become radicalized and lost its grip on reality. This is not a problem, as I said, that will disappear overnight. And our nation will endure severe consequences, including violence, until the insidious MAGA spell is broken. Not even their savior, Donald Trump, could reign in these renegades anymore. While they drank his magic orange Kool-Aid in 2016 and 2020, they have gone rogue stealing his recipe and concocting their own toxic brew of Kool-Aid. These true believers are a menace to America 
and proving detrimental to democracy. The question is, how do we get these zombies into right-wing rehab where they belong? Mark Polymeropoulos is a former senior intelligence service officer at the CIA. He warns us that right-wing propaganda in the United States must be dealt with just as Al-Qaeda's propaganda had to be countered in the Middle East. He wrote on NBC's website, quote, the Rand Corporation has been one important organization investigating more specific strategies that might work to de-radicalize U.S. extremists. I'm glad people are working on this. It needs to be done. Unfortunately, one obstacle to neutralizing our homegrown nuts is our legal system. In the NBC article, he wrote, the Constitution confers certain free speech protections for extremist propaganda in the U.S. that prevent authorities from exactly replicating our foreign counterterrorism strategy here at home. Without the force of law, Polymeropolis argues that we must rely on moral suasion, quote, for one thing, we can exercise free speech to proclaim that the normalization of violence against politicians is dangerous and unacceptable. Politicians' clear denunciation of violence is also important for another lesson that came from my time running counterterrorism operations in the Middle East. One of the more effective counter-radicalization efforts in Arab countries was led by Muslims themselves articulating that extremism was wrong. In Saudi Arabia, for example, government officials took the lead in identifying at-risk individuals at all stages, including those in prison, who had already perpetrated terror acts. Rehabilitation programs provided counseling, religious re-education, and help reintegrating into society. Though a minority of those who have gone through the process have returned to terrorism, there have also been clear cases of success. What Polymeropolis suggests makes perfect sense in a normal civilized society. However, we are talking about Republican leaders so debased, so devoid of decency that they laughed when Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was attacked by a hammer-wielding MAGA madman. How are we going to get them to do the right thing? I don't see it happening so quickly. I mean, who in the Republican Party has the guts to tell the MAGA base that they have been snookered? Who amongst them has the courage to suggest they desperately need deprogramming at right-wing rehab facilities? Which Republican leader will stand up to denounce radical evangelical churches that preach militancy and sedition? This is where a lot of that goes on inside these churches, just as we've had these madrasas in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia that are preaching hate, division, and discrimination. We see the same thing with some of these right-wing churches in the, in the United States. That's where people are getting some of these heinous messages. And somebody has to stand up and tell the truth about that. In his NBC essay, Polymeropoulos stumbles upon what might finally wake up Republican leaders. As a matter of self-preservation alone, it seems like condemning violence and hate should be happening without any prompting. Which political figure has the hubris to think the violence won't reach them? Well, you would think that would be the thought process. But arrogant GOP leaders released the Furies on their own party and lost control. They're afraid of their own people. And some of them have drunk the Kool-Aid themselves and they think they're superheroes, but they aren't superheroes. They are not immune from the culture of political violence they foolishly created and unleashed on our society. If misogynistic Republicans hate Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi, wait until they meet Ms. Karma. They're not going to like her. If misogynistic Republicans hate Hillary and Nancy, just wait until I meet Mrs. Karma. They're not going to like her. 
Thank you so much for watching or listening to The Wayne Besson Show. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. If you listen on Spotify or Apple, rate the show with five stars. Until we meet again, see you next time.